0: And Welcome inside to another episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Jenny Presley. Jenny, welcome in.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right, Jenny. I got to know you a little bit during the uh, pre-recording of this episode, um, but why don't you give everyone that's listening a little bit of introduction about who you are and where you came from?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Jenny Presley. I'm a physical therapist and athletic trainer, and I work out of Iowa right now, but um, I grew up in West Tennessee. I um, went to undergrad at Harding University in Arkansas, where I got my bachelor's degree in athletic training. I spent a little bit of time between PT school and AT school doing some work in an outpatient clinic in Utah as an athletic trainer, and then went on to complete my, athlete, uh, my physical therapy degree at University of Tennessee in Memphis. Um, from there, I was able to be accepted into a residency where I attended Ironman Sports Medicine Institute in in uh, Houston, Texas, and uh, was lucky enough to be hired on full time for about a year and then ended up in the DFW area for about four years after. So I've been pretty, pretty blessed with kind of the route that I went. But um, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, my my uh, academics and my education uh, spiel. But but yeah,
0: Gotcha. So after, after PT school, what made you want to do a residency program? And then we've had a couple of graduates from the Ironman program. So why, why their program in particular?
1: Yeah. So when I was a student, I was a first year student at one of the national um, conferences and I actually met somebody who told me about residencies. It wasn't really talked about at our school. Um, But then I just, it it just sounded something like I would be interested in doing. Um, I'm someone who pursues kind of anything that can better myself in an area that I love and so I was really passionate about sports medicine so I decided you know in my first year PT school I wanted to do a residency so I talked with a couple of residents one from USC a couple from other programs and actually went to CSM where I met the Ironman crew and you know I wasn't looking into Texas programs I had no interest in going to Houston. But those the people that I met at CSM for our roundtable discussion, like they really kind of, you know, were very outgoing, really friendly. They were excited about what they were doing and the things that they had to offer to their residents was really exciting as well. Um, So I ended up applying to a couple of different programs, interviewed at three and ultimately was selected for the Ironman Institute, mainly because it aligned with some of my interests at the time.
0: Gotcha. And so kind of go into those interests. What were some of the things that, you know, aligned well with what Ironman had to offer and things that you wanted to get into?
1: Yeah. So as an AT, you know, a lot of questions that I get for residency is why did you go into a residency? You can just go out and work with high schools and do sideline coverage, but really um, Ironman had a lot of connections and resources. So they were the primary provider for Ironman, um, the national championship in the Woodlands and the Galveston one, a half. um, And I was interested in endurance athletes. Um, During my time in PT school, I actually did some road races. I actually trained uh, for competition during my time as a PT student. And I did my first triathlon the last, the last year of um, my studies. And so I was really interested in the endurance athlete. So that, being the iron man institute they had a lot of opportunity to kind of get more involvement in those areas and i also wanted a little bit of division one experience and so i was able i had the privilege of being in the athletic training room at university of houston and worked with their track and field team for about two years so um really had all of those aspects but i also wanted to be well-rounded and they offer teaching opportunities they offer research opportunities. And the one thing that I didn't really um, count on was how wonderful their faculty were and how great the mentorship was. So um, that's ultimately why I stayed on full-time is because I wanted to cont- continue to feed back into that program because it was such a great program.
0: Gotcha. So after you finished residency, um, did you go straight into working? Kind of what was your journey after that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So like I said, I got hired on full-time and I actually... Functioned as a lecturer and mentor in the residency program. But at the exact same time, I started a fellowship in orthopedic manual therapy. Um, that journey took me about three or four years to complete. Um, so I was able to finish that and wrap that up last year. Um, and my husband had to go get his PhD. So he ended up moving us up to UT Southwestern, the DFW area. So but the good thing is Texas Health that I ended up at has a really good relationship with all the people at Memorial Hermann. So I ended up being almost like a lateral move where it houses a residency. There's a lot of opportunity. It was almost like a similar, similar environment that I really loved. So I, I felt really lucky enough to get a job at Texas Health right after that.
0: Gotcha. Um, and so obviously you have a desire to, you know, continue learning, continue to grow. So what kind of drove you to do a, a manual fa- manual therapy fellowship after finishing residency?
1: You know, there were a couple of faculty members that were fellows um, in the residency and I got to mentor them with them in the training room setting and in the clinic setting. And I, there were some, there were some skills that I just felt like inadequate with and felt like, you know, even the most complex patient, they could, they knew what to do. And and it was almost like their thought process. I wanted to, I wanted to almost like mirror, like I wanted to be as advanced with complicated cases because it's not just about the manual therapy. It's about clinical reasoning. It's about really kind of delving into like, you know, how, how do we take this person as a whole and make them better versus how do we do this one manual technique and apply it to a patient? So that was actually one of the biggest blessings out of out of the fellowship was to be able to mentor further on really complicated orthopedic cases and utilize manual therapy to our advantage versus showing you a bunch of tricks with your hands and, and doing them on each other and then calling yourself a fellow. So I feel like that was probably the biggest um, the biggest thing that drew me to fellowship.
0: Gotcha. And you said it took a couple years to wrap up. So is it a program where it's like every couple weekends that you kind of go meet up? And uh, how does that how does like the structure of that work out?
1: Yeah, so it's way different than residency. So residency is more where you're doing a full year or 13 months of um, where you're working full time for the company that you're doing the residency with, and you're also doing additional hours. So it's about it's a pretty big commitment, especially if you have to move to that residency, whereas with the fellowship, it's you can hold whatever full-time job you have, and it's ten weekend courses over the course of two years, and then the mentorship is about 150 hours with a fellow, and so some people finish it pretty quickly. Some people can finish it within the two to three years, um, because I had a move and there were a couple of other life transitions at that time. I actually moved to a place where there was only one fellow um, that was approved by our company. So I had to travel and drive from Dallas to Houston to get my mentorship. So it just took a long time. It was a big commitment. And uh, ultimately, it was really worth it for for what I wanted out of it.
0: Gotcha. Um, And so one of the ways I actually got connected to you was through LinkedIn. And, um, you know, I saw that you were associated with like higher level gymnastics. So kind of tell us a little bit about your relationship with gymnastics. Did you do gymnastics growing up or kind of how did you get connected with that sport?
1: Sure. Um, So I did gymnastics when I was really little and I was still interested in tumbling. So I would take tumbling class afterwards because in the 90s, if you if you kind of have a little bit of a background on on um, kind of where gymnastics has has been and where it's come. It's it was such a rigid sport. It was very it was very hard. It was very um, it was to a point where it wasn't a great environment for me as a kid. So my mom pulled me out pretty quickly seeing how tough the coaches were on them and there were a lot eating disorders were a really big thing. They're becoming less of a thing. So it's becoming a better culture to be in, but back in the 90s it just wasn't. So I got out of it and I decided to do competitive cheerleading, co-ed cheerleading where You know, we, we still were doing some similar skills. It's a little bit more like acrobatic gymnastics than artistic gymnastics that we know of. Um, But I kind of stayed within the realm of tumbling. So I have a good understanding of it. Um, I started doing some coverage for a a Texas health outreach program. And I got involved with um, a couple of artistic uh, competitions in Denton. um, And then really just kind of put my... You know, put my resume out there and was contacted and to kind of help be become more involved with uh, gymnastics as a whole. So, um, over the past year, I've really taken some time to do some needs analysis on on just the sport, the sport demands because that's a really huge aspect that we need to be better at is just kind of understanding what the sport demands of the athletes and being able to bridge that gap from rehab to performance and been able to go on a couple of trips and do some um, national team coverage and it's been it's been great so far
0: right and so you know when you did that needs analysis um gymnastics athletes are very different than your typical field athletes right they're very different than a 300 pound offensive lineman or a a basketball player or a soccer player um so what were some of those things that you noticed and have in your experience have noticed like different um differences in uh, like what they need in their rehab and uh, their specific injuries?
1: Sure. So they practice a lot. So one thing I start with is just like volume, right? It's like how many hours a day, how many days a week are they, and then how many events they're in. So with me, I'm, I'm working a little bit more with the trampoline and tumbling athletes where it's a little bit different than artistic. Um, there's three disciplines within that realm And so kind of watching them at practice, seeing what they have to do, um, what kind of energy systems are we challenging? Um, Where's their power coming from? Are they more of a horizontal or a vertical athlete? Um, Understanding those aspects and being able to incorporate that into almost like a preventative injury reduction management type uh, program for the team has been really helpful Um, going out and watching their practices, seeing how many contacts they make on the floor um, talking with uh, people who have done the sport and just understanding, you know, kind of what their training looks like, can give me a better idea of what they need to get back to. So that's really been my kind of needs analysis. Is really just understanding volume, load, energy systems, and being able to apply those performance factors into what I need to do in order to make sure that their load management is appropriate. And make sure that their off season you know, kind of mimics what they do, but in a way where it's more cross training than it is what they're what they're actually doing on the floor.
0: Right. Um, and so you mentioned um, how, you know, you're trying to take into account the volume and the amount of contacts they're making. Now, when you're let's say you have an injured athlete, and you're trying to discuss with their coach kind of how that you best way you can get them back onto performing, performing as quickly as possible, but at the same time, kind of monitoring, how much load they're doing. How do you have that conversation with the coach if they might not understand, you know, their whole mindset is like, they've been doing it for so long this way, but now you're trying to come at them with a a totally different aspect of, okay, we need to pair it back to make sure they're able to compete and make sure they're good to go.
1: Sure. And I will say that with the coaches I've been been involved with, with the national team, all of them have been super receptive. And it's such a big, drastic difference because being in a training room setting in a division one setting has been a drastic difference in the sense that less openness, more micromanagement of the medical staff. Um, If they didn't like what we offered or what we suggested, they did it anyway. And, you know, they did what they wanted with us. It's, you know, there is a concern because there's been, you know, this is a year round sport. They're training all the time. Coaches are no, no stranger to injury and they've they've seen injuries kind of become chronic injuries and you know what they want is they want their athlete to be able to perform so they've actually taken our advice to heart and what we've done in order to make sure that we get the trust of the coach and the athlete is really to try and allow them to be able to participate somewhat in their practice to maintain their skills to maybe work a different region of the body but also to um, give them something to do that is not completely shutting them down. Because I think the old way of thinking, I guess, in the rehab stance is we'll shut them down for two weeks and put them right back into their sport where that's such a drastic change in like work rest, you know, like there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of good things that can happen when you shut someone down and then you put them back in a power plyometric environment on when you've done nothing in the, in the meantime. So, um, being able to tell them, yes, they can complete, they can, you know, complete some of the workout today, we're going to give them, they have to do a certain number of contacts, and then they need to get off the apparatus. But then we'll be able to challenge them in a way where they still are conditioning, because those things coaches really gravitate towards is, you know, the kids don't need to be sitting out, sitting out just watching the rest of the crew, they need to be doing something and being involved. So I feel like it, for the most part, we've had a lot of Coaches be really encouraging and really supportive of kind of our suggestions,
0: right? Um, and so, you know, what are some of the uh, most typical or most common injuries that you see with gymnastics athletes that you end up rehabbing?
1: A lot of lower extremity. Um, so, for the most part, if we're seeing if we're seeing tumbling athletes, the, the biggest thing is Achilles tendon rupture or um, lower extremity um, fractures. And that's just based off of what I've seen so far. Um, There aren't a lot of upper extremity injuries involved unless there is some kind of mishap in a rotation or a um, somersault. And with our trampoline athletes especially, it's mainly just lower extremity or traumatic injury because instead of coming off of something from like 5 to 10 feet, they're coming from 20 to 30 feet onto a metal piece that could possibly cause a femur fracture or, um, a tib-fib fracture. So we can have things from the smallest, like ankle sprains to minor sprains, to fractures, to major fractures. So it can range, especially with, with, um, trampoline and tumbling athletes, but that's for the most part, what I've seen so far.
0: Gotcha. Um, and so you mentioned that these athletes are, you know, super powerful plyometric athletes, like you know, they're jumping, if they're on like a tumble track, you know, they're jumping 20 plus feet in the air. How do you kind of make sure that your rehab prepares them for that amount of like explosiveness um, to make sure that they're ready to, you know, do all of the amazing twists and turns that they're able to do?
1: Sure. So there's, um, there's a few things that you can do, and it's no different than what you would do with like an ACL injury, um, as far as like how you would progress them. So you can start with more like sped up um, trying to get the like rate of force development prior to loading them and putting them under load. So it's almost like you're doing lighter weight at a faster rate and then you start to load them heavier and you actually start to do more um, lower reps um, because you're challenging them more a little bit um, at a higher intensity. Um, so for me, what I've been doing is we've been trying to implement some prehab work, like I mentioned before, where they're having to do a certain number of um, power, I guess, power work. So we've had them do some almost like sports metric type things. We've kind of taken a bit from the FIFA and taken a bit from um, from sports metrics and looked at what they have to do and taken it more from there. So they're not doing a whole lot of horizontal jumps. Um they're doing a little bit more like kettlebell swings, um, hang cleans, wall balls, things like that, where they're having to move load at a faster rate, more in a vertical sense than a horizontal sense. And so there's things that you can do before they even jump to help help prepare their body for power type activities. And just being able to dose that to where um, week to week, they're not doing such a, they're they're introducing a stimulus where that will be challenged and they're not going from strength straight to plyometric without having done some of these pre-plyometric drills before.
0: Right. Um, So I wanted to ask a little bit, you said you've covered a couple of national events at this point. Um, What does coverage look like? What are some things that you're looking for um, when you're at a gymnastics meet? Because when I've gone to a couple of the Florida gymnastics meets, all I see is that they're able to do three backflips in a row. And I'm like, That all looks really great. But what are some of those key little things that you're looking for from a uh, coverage standpoint?
1: Sure. So um, as far as coverage goes, I function mostly as an athletic trainer. Um, So what we do is we get there early, we set up, we watch them warm up. um, And we typically have a few people on the floor and then we have almost like a home base, like medical hub for us to function out of. Um, And most of the time... We're just making sure that the athletes stay healthy during their warm up, um, between their warm up and their competition, and then during competition. And that takes a lot of coordination because there's a lot of athletes at some of these big events. Um, and so we have a host of some of s- some national team staff members, and then we also have um, outsourced for like a, I guess a healthcare system within the the area. So if we're like in Omaha, Nebraska, we, we contact their medical uh, system there that would be kind of providing the athletic trainers in this, in the docs, kind of like a way for us to be able to fast, uh, like, I guess, fast stream them into an emergency medical system pretty quickly if they need imaging or if they need surgery. Um, and then ultimately everything kind of runs as is. So we kind of just make sure that everybody knows their role and knows their place And then ultimately we're just there to make sure that they stay healthy. But, um, but yeah, I would say for the most part, I would say most of my physical therapy, uh, skills are saved for either recovery or they're saved for more like camps whenever there is downtime to do some rehab.
0: Gotcha. Um, so this next question is a little two-parted. Uh, so you've, Been through you know a residency, you've been through fellowship, and then I'm sure your time in PT school and AT school, you've been around a lot of great sports clinicians. So, what makes you what to you makes a good sports PT or AT, and then what specifically makes to you a good um, gymnastics PT?
1: Sure. So, I would say what makes someone a good sports PT is someone that works hard, is professional. Some of the basics things that I guess maybe are forgotten you know, it's good to be competent and it's good to have all these wonderful skills that we go get training for. But if you don't know how to communicate effectively, if you put your ego over the health of an athlete and you decide to do something unprofessional, it doesn't, it's not, it's not benefiting anybody but yourself and it's more self-promotion. So I think that a lot of times when young PTs come out and they say, I want to do sports PT. Um, A lot of times I'll, you know, sit them aside and say, you know, just so you know, this, it's not pretty. If you're a sports PT, you're working 40 to 60 hours a week, some of those events are 12 hour plus days, you have to do things you don't want to do that you aren't trained to do. Like, you're cleaning up things, you're, you're packing things. I mean, you're, you're physically going to be working all these events just as hard as the next person and then also if you get to a point where in, in your career you're trying to get to a professional level just know that if you get to that point don't think that you know you're more special than the person beside you because everyone around you you're surrounded by people who are the best at what they do and so a lot of times when when I see people who may have egos or may have may feel like it's they're gonna have so much autonomy in the professional world I'm You know, a lot of it is like just being a really good team player, knowing when to speak up and knowing when to back off and and respecting the person beside you because they work just as hard and they've been through just as much for, for them to get there as much as you have. So I think that if someone wants to be a good PT or a good sports PT in the professional world, I'd say be humble, be professional, be respectful and work really, really hard outside of that for competency, you know, a good sports PT will be somebody who delves into the sport of whoever they see. So if I've never worked with a jujitsu athlete, and they come into my my clinic, and they're my PT, or they're my patient, I'm going to do my best to learn everything there is to know about jujitsu so that I can bridge that gap for them, because they're going to see that I'm implementing some sport specific movements early in their rehab so that it's not just with the mind uh, mindset of just being done with PT, it's performance uh, mindset, which is where they're at. They wanna get back and they don't wanna just get back to participate, they wanna perform. Um, and so communicating that to them early and then loading them appropriately. Um, I feel like a good PT knows how to load a patient, good strength and conditioning uh, principles utilized in rehab. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a loaded question for your first mm-hmm. part. <laughs> And then what was your second part? Uh, makes-
0: specifically a good gymnastics PT.
1: Okay. Um,
0: or, or or clinician.
1: Sure. Um, you know, it's kind of a similar to my first answer, just more specific, I guess for gymnasts is, you know, they're probably some of the hardest working athletes out there and nobody knows it because they put in hours and hours. It's almost like their full-time job when they're really young. Um, and, it's really important to make sure that you're treating them as a whole because a lot of times they they take their job as a gymnast really seriously to where you know they can mask pain, they can mask any mental health issues, they can mask anything just to be able to stay on the floor, you know, compete and do what they love to do. So I guess for for those who are working with gymnasts, it's really it's really easy to overlook some of those broader things that we don't focus on, a lot of the psychosocial stuff, a lot of um, the nutrition stuff, maybe the things that we aren't comfortable with treating. Just understand, you know, some red flags, some yellow flags that can kind of give you an idea if somebody's struggling so that you can also be that advocate to give them to the right professional so that we're treating them as a whole instead of as an injury or as an athlete only.
0: Right. Um, and so I actually had a question about that, you know, these athletes, like you said, are tough and will kind of, will probably say, Oh, I feel fine even when they're not. Um, so when you're rehabbing an athlete and all they want to do is be able to perform. And you said, you kind of, you know, keep them involved in their sport in some capacity, but you know, there's, you know, if you're rehabbing an ACL or an Achilles tendon, you know, repair, those are long, very long rehabs. And I'm sure it can get frustrating. So how do you kind of prevent the athlete getting burned out from rehab and try to keep them focused and on task um, instead of you know prevent them from getting frustrated with uh, the long, like long chronic nature of rehab.
1: That's really tough, isn't it? Um, and that happens because you'll have somebody who injures one side. They'll do a six to nine month rehab. They'll get back to it. They'll they'll get up for competition to make a make national team or whatever, and then they tear their other side, and then it's another devastating blow. So you have to understand that you know, when someone gets injured during competition and it's, they had just completed a six to nine month recovery that they're going to need some kind of support outside of just physical support. And, you know, a lot of the psychosocial issues that go back into like increasing risk of re-injury in ACL populations specific are for fear of re-injuring again. And so for me, I try to Just understand that it will come with an impact on their mental health if they have to sit out because it's it's so ingrained in people's identity that they are this athlete that, you know, you have to like I'm not I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist and I don't pretend to be. I know that, you know, if I advocate for them and their mental health and they see it as important too then and they have buy in it can actually work really well for getting them through the next however many months of recovery. Now in not necessarily specific to gymnastics, but I've had a few athletes who have gone through a long bout of ACL recovery and they've been burned out. And sometimes you have to, you know, give them something to be excited about. So for, for instance, if, If um, they've come in and they haven't touched whatever apparatus they've wanted to touch or like for a football player, if they haven't been able to kick a football or, you know, whatever it is, and they've just been down, you know, just giving them a little bit of leash in a very safe, controlled, um, supervised environment helps me helps me establish that relationship a little bit better of like, you know, there is an end goal, we are not far from it, we just have to respect tissue healing and make sure that we meet our criteria before we're able to get there. Um, And then sometimes, you know, for repeat, you know, ACL revisions and everything sometimes, you know, in the midst of, like, when they've gotten to the point where they're running, and they're still not strong enough to do cutting and they're in this this kind of wonky phase sometimes recruiting outside help like just having them work with their strength coach you know teaming up with them so that they're in the gym working out with their you know with everyone else and it's safe and it's you know under the supervision of whoever whatever provider athletic trainer strength coach then they'll feel a little bit more like an athlete like getting them sweating will make them feel like an athlete so doing whatever you can to to kind of reintroduce them into their environment they they love and they they want to be a part of makes them feel more like the, like they're still participating on their team while they're still respecting the recovery process too. So it, gotcha. it won't be the same with everybody. I think with some things that work for certain athletes, it, you know, same sport, maybe an individual didn't respond well to what you tried with that last athlete that worked. So you know, sometimes it takes just being creative and, and kind of delving into what's, you know, what's, what could, you know, that person respond well to.
0: Right. I always think that that the repeat offender or the repeat injury um, athlete is, is always hard to deal with. Even just general population patients, you know, if you have a patient with low back pain and they come in with low back pain after they felt like they were getting better, it's, it's always a really hard conversation to have um, you know, and trying to get them, it's like, all right, well, we're gonna have to, you know, kind of start from square one, and getting them to kind of buy back in after they felt like they were, you know, at the at the finish line is always a really tough conversation. So I think that's a great piece of advice for, you know, all types of athletes. Oh, yeah. um, and so we talked a little bit about kind of what your role was during venue coverage for, uh, you know, covering these gymnastic events. So kind of walk us through like a day of what it's like to be you when you're having to go to these types of these national type of events.
1: Sure. So like if we were traveling, and we were at an event, but it's not necessarily event day. And it's like a training day, typically, what we'll do is they'll have like two different types of trainings, they'll have like morning training, then lunch, then afternoon training. And we'll we won't necessarily do anything prior to um, training as far as like recovery stuff, like ARC training room type stuff, but we'll tape we'll do stretches. We'll do whatever types of warm ups that they need. And then they'll train. We'll provide coverage for training, but we'll rehab those who are still rehabbing once they're done with their training workout for that period of time. And then we'll come back. We'll eat lunch at the hotel. And then typically we open up a period of time for the athletes to come in and get treatments. And that's more set up kind of like a makeshift training room. And uh, so that will be a period of time. And then they'll have some rest and then they'll get back up on the bus and they'll go back to the venue and they'll do more training and it will kind of be a repeat of what the morning training looked like. After that, um, we'll typically pack up for the day from the venue. We'll go back, we'll eat dinner, and then we'll have almost like another recovery open hour or two where we're doing treatments on them before they go to bed. So it's essentially like a, you know, sun up, sun down, and then some type of day. And that's kind of how the training camps are set up as well. So training camps and then training before the event starts kind of look similar. They're just a little bit more uh, unpredictable based on like transportation, if it's reliable, or, you know, if the venue doesn't have air conditioning, you know, we just have to get a little bit creative as far as you know, what we're working with if we're in country or out of country. Um, but yeah, I would say it's pretty similar to what you would expect, like a, a training room type of scenario would be where they go out and practice, you come in, you treat, and go out and practice, you come in and treat.
0: Um, and so have you had a favorite memory or any anything that sticks out in particular um, working um, with gymnastics so far?
1: Um, man, so – it's rare for you to have a team that, you know, is so cohesive and, and works so well together. And I think that at least the team members that I work with are very, very, they're very good. And so a lot of times when there's downtime, we'll have moments where um, the team doc will teach us something and we'll all kind of gather around and, and it'll either be on an athlete or one of us. And we'll just kind of almost use that as a way to kind of educate other providers because it's not just a PT there. It's, It's a DO, it's a chiropractor, it's a athletic trainer, it's EMT, you know, all of our providers are kind of just hanging out and just almost like brain, you know, picking each other's brain and saying, hey, I saw you do that with that one person. Can you show me what you did and kind of tell me why you did it? And to me, that shows a sign of a team that works really well together and wants everybody in the team to work, to be better, as opposed to like. Hey, why did you do that? You know, like more of like a challenge somebody and be defensive. It's more receptive and open. So for right. me, I would say those downtime moments when we have time to show and share and and educate each other, those moments are really, really awesome. And it's really cool to see at a, a really high level. So I'm really, that was one thing that actually surprised me about working in elite sports and working in the professional world is you know, I didn't expect that. I thought everyone's going to be on their own island. There's going to be too many cooks in the kitchen. We're not going to bother each other. We're just going to do our job and keep our head down. But that's really hasn't been my experience so far.
0: Right. I think that's awesome. You know, when you're all just learning and, you know, there for the, the health of the athlete and that's your own real goal and not having individual agendas. I think that's, you know, the ideal situation for a sports medicine team. Yeah, um, sure. So last question before we get you out of here. Um, do you have any advice uh, for any aspiring sports PTs? Uh, you talked a little bit about it, you know, when you were talking about the characteristics of a good sports PT. But do you have any advice of anybody that wants to work in the professional level, such as yourself?
1: Yeah. So when I was early in my career, before I got through PT school, I knew I wanted to work in professional sports. And being a female in a male dominant sport was really hard. I think that was really discouraging early on, and I think it's gotten a lot better. So, um, and this, this is for anybody, you know, a lot of people tell like there, a lot of people's advice is like, Oh, it's who, you know, and that's really all that matters. And to me, it, it wasn't about that. It was about make myself work on myself as much as I can to be the best clinician that I can be so that if I do get an opportunity to put my foot in the door, that I'll be welcomed in and, st- and I'll stay. So for me you know i connected with somebody who who had the job that i wanted that was one of my first things was hey how did you get to where you are tell me what your what your path looked like because i want to do what you want to, what you're doing right now and so you know based off of that you know i've kind I kind of planned my pt school out i navigated that i was like all right residency i need to be a better pt i don't need to be mediocre i need to be better and so i found a program that challenged me and humbled me and made me a better PT. And honestly, I I couldn't you know uh, recommend more any kind of program. I and mean, it can be a residency fellowship or just a informal mentorship that you are in an environment where your biases are challenged. You're always pushing to be better as far as evidence based and your clinical reasoning is you know will only grow based off of that. So having gone through that. Um, I would say if, if it's your goal to be in the professional sports, you know, keep your head down, work really hard. It's going to be really hard road, but if you, if you go the right path, there will be doors open for you. You just have to be patient enough to wait for them because it wasn't easy for me to get even to where I'm at today because I thought it would be easy since I was a PTAT, but it's, it's not easy for anybody. Um, I think a lot of it comes with timing and a lot of comes with a little bit with who you know, but, you know, being persistent and working hard and showing up and being professional and proving to people that you're a hard worker and you're there for the right reasons is going to keep you there. So I'd say that would be my advice.
0: I think that's great advice. Um, you know, we've had people from all sorts of backgrounds, PT, AT, you know, dual certified, you know, residency, non-residency, um, and then keeping your head down and working hard has been probably number one theme. So I think that's another, you know, adding adding one more person's advice to do, on top of that big piece of advice to work hard. Um, Jenny, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug before we get you out of here?
1: Yeah. Go balls. Woohoo! Sorry. That's okay. I, I don't have a, I'm not very active on Instagram. It's just a bunch of pictures of my children. Um, <laughs> but you can find me on LinkedIn. If you have any questions following this, um, that's typically where I've kind of filled all of my professional uh, interactions, But if you want to see a lot of cute children, you can come to my Instagram. But <laughs> that's really my personal account. So gotcha. Go All
0: right. Despite your poor choice in uh, college football teams, you know, I do appreciate you coming on um, to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts podcast. Awesome. Shout out to Jenny Presley, who works in high-level gymnastics, for coming on to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts podcast. If you like what you heard from today's guests or want to hear more episodes from great future guests, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening.